0: Well, I invite you to turn with me for the last time to book of Hosea and um, read the final chapter, which is only nine verses. And um, we'll read it in a second. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Hosea, for the challenge that it has been over the last uh, few weeks and uh, how it's been searching to our own hearts. And as we come to this final chapter, we pray you'd lift up our hearts uh, to you and bless us uh, through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hosea, chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with your words... And return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity except what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like, the, like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the corn. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the, the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Well, this chapter um, presents to us quite a, quite a change in atmosphere uh, from what we have been uh, looking at before. In the previous, I don't know, 10 chapters or so, 4 through to 13, it has been, uh, I don't know if you find this, but I find it quite a difficult read, uh, difficult to preach from, because uh, what we've seen time and time again is uh, consistent condemnation of the sins of a nation leading to um, a, a, basically a suspension of the covenant administration um, where God says, these are not my people any longer. And, uh, and though that we have seen a few chinks of light that point forward to Jesus Christ in, in various places, it's been pretty relentless for us, I think. Um, and uh, God has been relentless with us. And I hope you've received it like that. That God has been relentless with us in his word. You remember how this book started. Um, Hosea is married to Gomer. And uh, uh, Gomer is, a, is described as a woman of whoredom, of prostitution. And uh, it seems that she had, she had this propensity to, to give herself to other lovers. You know, not to be faithful to her husband, Hosea. And yet Hosea is commanded by God to love her. And, uh, and actually he ends up in chapter 3 buying her back from the marketplace where she's selling herself. And, uh, and buying her back out of all the trouble that she's got herself into. And he is to continue to love her. And that's the kind of situation that God wants to communicate to Hosea about his relationship to Israel. That, uh, as it were, Israel is his beloved. And yet Israel has been unfaithful to God. Israel has gone off after other lovers. has gone off after other gods. And uh, God has been drawing to their attention their many sins and seeking to draw them back in his love. See, in a sense, the nation of Israel is like a bride that uh, has gone off the rails and entered into false worship and looking to the big nations around Assyria, Egypt, uh, for help, and a society that's increasingly unjust because it forgets God's law, his covenant promises. But in it all, God's, is, is the love of God for his delinquent people. It, it grieves God to see them fall so low. Uh, you remember back in chapter 6, the Lord says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? It's a, it's a kind of cry of love. of But almost a, in, our, in our parlance, a kind of exasperated call. What shall I do with you? And so, temporal judgment is going to come. A a judgment in time. Not the ultimate judgment, of course. But exile is coming. Assyria is going to destroy Samaria, the capital city. Samaria is going to overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. And in time, Judah too will be overrun uh, sometime later. And so, it's 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 a serious and sobering message that we've been receiving over the last few weeks. But this closing chapter has quite a change of atmosphere. uh, Because at the center of it is something like a a love song from God to his people. Um, It's about the beauty of fellowship with God. Which God wants to offer to his people and to restore them to fullness and fruitfulness. And I think the key verse is um, is verse eight. Oh Ephraim what have I to do with idols it is I who answer and look after you I am like an evergreen cypress from me comes your fruit and this verse speaks of the kind of gods that we have and so what I'm going to do this evening is begin there begin in verse 8 and essentially I'm going to work backwards through the chapter a strange thing to do. You wrote it in this order and I'm going to go backwards. Well, let's see how it goes. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to start at verse 8. And I want want you to notice in the second half of verse 8 how God is portrayed like a beautiful tree. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And if you look back to verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. that's the idea of the tree, uh, giving protective shades to the people of God. And it's, uh, now I'm not sure that many of us will have thought of God as a tree. Uh, It's an interesting image, isn't it? Uh, He uses the image to try and convey something of his provision and his love for his people. The tree in verse 7 is big enough to cast a shadow for every single uh, Israelite, every single one who comes to him. And you can, you can also imagine, you can imagine that, uh, you know, remember that Israel has, uh, has been through the wilderness. They, they, in many ways, they're in a desert, and they've been in a desert. Uh, the book of Exodus actually literally goes through a desert. But, uh, and what do you need in a desert? Well, you need to find shade. You need to find somewhere to shelter from the, the beating uh, power of the sun high in the sky at midday. And so God is presented as this protective tree that guards and protects his people uh, from the ravages of, of the world. And then secondly, in verse 8, he is described as evergreen. He is the evergreen cypress tree. And I don't think it means what we mean by an evergreen tree like, like you know a conifer or, the, or something that's outside of our, our house uh, in in Overly Elv- green roads, but uh, rather it's a tree that is is a fruit bearing tree, but it's continually green. It is continually uh, green and bearing fruit. You know the idea of uh, a healthy tree is pops up in uh, all sorts of place- places. Of uh, Psalm one speaks of uh, the man of God being a, like a tree planted by streams of living water, whose fruit, whose leaf does not wither, and his fruit, whose uh, leaves are always green, and his fruit does not. Is always bearing fruit, or Jeremiah 17, for example. Same idea there, and this this idea of uh, continual fruitfulness uh, is is present here in in God. You know, He is an evergreen, ever fruitful God. And then thirdly, from me comes your fruit. So here's something else that's happening. Under the tree, the people gather under the tree. They they benefit from the fruitfulness of the tree of God himself. And from that, your fruit comes. You begin to bear fruit as a people. You become fruitful people under his wing. And what it's, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Because God is not just the God who protects his people and guards them from the, the downgrade, as it were, of the ravages of the world around them. But rather what he is doing is something wholly positive in that he is growing fruit in his people. So that they become fruitful. From me comes your fruit. It's God Himself that causes fruit to grow in Christians. My friends, this is a, this is a picture of God, th- of, of God or a God, which is so alien to the modern world. I, I, I rather suspect that all religions, uh, and maybe how people think about the God of Christianity, um, think about the relationship with God as a, as merely a transaction, you know, transactional relationships. I don't know if you've come across that term before but you know, I, do, I do something for you if you, you, know, you do something for me and I'll do something for you that's a, that's a kind of trade that's going on with people we, do, we have these transactional relationships sometimes you go into a shop and you buy something I'll give you the money, you give me the, food, the goods uh, we do these transactions all the time uh, I go to the vending machine and put my money in I get the thing out that I want the drink or the, the chocolate bar or whatever a transaction that's going on And sometimes people think about God in that way, that it's a a transactional relationship. If we do something nice for God, then somehow God is going to be good to us. That's how people often think about God. And maybe some Christians think that way about God. But that's not how God is. For He is the one true God who wants to, to give of Himself to His creatures. God seems to have this desire for self-communication to his people. To communicate himself to his people. And in doing so, they flourish. So It's not just God that flourishes in all his fertility and wonderful creativity. But the people of God flourish as he gives himself to them. And they become wonderfully fruitful. And I'll say more about this in a moment. Of course, this is the way that we are made. We're made in the image of God. We're made to enjoy fellowship with God. Um, We're not made for anything else. All human beings are made for fellowship with God. Whether they're Christians or not. They're made for this. They're designed for this. And as they come into fellowship with God, they themselves become fruitful in their lives. That's why life without God is so frustrating because it's so fruitless and empty and pointless. It's unsatisfying and it always ends in bitterness. People who are without God end their lives with a certain degree of bitterness. And the reason for that is that human beings are made in God's image. We're made for this relationship to connect with the God who's made us. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11, if you want to look that up some other time. But he has set eternity in the hearts of men. Uh, People have a knowledge of God that they don't necessarily recognize, but it's built into human beings. So that they're always seeking something. There's something missing until they connect with God. And God wants to connect with us and bring that fruitfulness into our lives. This uh, This is for our ultimate good. And it's God himself who brings that goodness. Into our lives, so God offers Himself to His people. He offers Himself uh, to people personally. So it's not an abstract idea. It's not. It's not a transactional relationship. It's personal. It is more like a marriage. It's a relationship that you're entering into, where hearts are, are entwined with one another, and He is offering a chance for people to know Him. As you come under His shade. And he is going to give to you. It's individual. It comes to you. It's not just a corporate thing. It's not just the, the vast body of Christian people are going to be beautiful as a body of people, but rather individually. You personally, because Hosea is knowing this in his personal experience. But you personally can have this knowledge of God, this closeness to God, just like Hosea. It's exclusive. It's like a marriage. When you come into this relationship with God, uh, you're not going to go off to other, after other lovers and try and seek your satisfaction elsewhere. You're going to come to God. You're going to come under his shade. And you're going to receive from him and eschew everything else that would grab your heart. And it's transformative. In other words, you're never left the same. You'll be changed by God in this covenant relationship that you enter into. From me comes your fruit, says God. Well, let's move on from that. Uh, so from God as a tree, let's move backwards now through the text to see what God does specifically for Israel, for the people of God. And this is where we need to go back to verses 4 through to 7. And God tells us a number of things that he, is, uh, he will do. The first thing he says is, I will heal their apostasy. I will heal their apostasy. Now, apostasy is the abandonment of this kind of relationship. This is, this is the trouble with Israel at this stage in history, that the people have abandoned relationship to God. They have fallen away from God. They have given up on him almost completely. And there's always a journey to apostasy. You come across it in, in some people in churches. Uh, people who come to trust God and his son Jesus Christ will usually start off with zeal and enthusiasm for, the, for Jesus Christ. And then something difficult happens. Some, or maybe some sin takes hold of them that they can't seem to shake off and they, they, they kind of hold on to and they want to keep it a sin, a practice uh, or maybe just over time small sins are allowed to multiply like weeds in your life and, and, uh, and you're just sort of surrounded by a kind of sinful life and you begin to lose your zeal and you show the signs of backsliding Loss of enthusiasm, loss of zeal, you know, heart change. You lose commitment to God. You, you begin to, to drop out of worship services. You begin to drop out of prayer meetings with Christian brothers and sisters. And that's, that backsliding can, can develop into full-blown apostasy. Where all those professions of faith that you made some time before become as nothing to you. It doesn't matter anymore. I don't care. You abandon the Christian faith. And the person stops coming to church, avoids any kind of fellowship with Christians. Now, such a person might dress it up as a a rational choice in life, but God says here apostasy is a condition that needs healing. It's not just a rational choice, I choose to do this, but it's a condition, it's a sickness that needs healing. And God and God wants to heal. God is in the business of healing that apostasy. He can do it. He can restore someone who's fallen away from a relationship with him. How does He do it? By turning from His anger at their sin and loving them freely, this is what He says next: "I will love them freely." It is, as people live in the love of God, in other words, not fighting against him, seeking to rebel against him, trying to find, and trying to find ways not to do as he requires, that as you live in that love, you find that he's offering himself to you, and that you surrender yourself to him and sit under the smile of his love. And he does the transforming work. He heals you of your apostasy. So, what happens then? Verse 5. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take roots like the trees of Lebanon. Uh, the, as we've seen before, the Jew is this idea of, of watering the desert every morning and from which growth comes. So you look at a desert and it doesn't look very promising, but then the Jew comes and things start bursting out of the ground when the Jew has fallen on the ground. And, and the love of God has this watering effect on people's lives, that irrigating effect on people's lives. To bring about change in life. And you see the effects of it. He shall blossom like the lily. And, and of course, the lily is a picture of beauty. Lilies were decorative elements of the temple in Jerusalem. In the Song of Solomon's, the lover says to his beloved, As a lily among the brambles, so is my love among the young women. You know, you're either a lily or you're a bramble. I think, in the world, um, if you, depending on whether you're loved by God. If you're loved by God, you're a lily, and you, God loves you that way. And God is speaking of what he is doing, going to do for his people. And Israel will have solid roots. He shall take roots like the trees of, of Lebanon. You'll notice that Lebanon is mentioned three times. Verse 5, 6, and 7 at the end of each one. Lebanon was kind of renowned for its trees and for the beauty of the forests. And so it's a, a good image of, of the beauty that God is going to bring. And beauty is going to be like an olive tree. Verse 6, his shoot shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the, the olive And I thought this was interesting because the olive tree comes into the New Testament, doesn't it? The olive tree comes up as uh, Paul speaks about the New Testament church. And he's speaking about Jews and Gentiles. And uh, the Gentiles being grafted into this olive tree of, uh, of Judaism. And so this becomes this wonderful tree of God's saving purposes. And here's the olive tree here in Hosea. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. In other words, it's a worldwide uh, people of God. And it's beautiful, the beautiful church of Jesus Christ. Like an olive tree. And it has a beautiful fragrance. And this fragrance like Lebanon again. How does Paul, the apostle, speak about gospel-preaching Christians? Like people who have an aroma of life about them. People who believe the gospel and speak about the gospel and like to tell other people about the gospel, they have an aroma of life about them. Who believe it. And then then he shall blossom like the vine. And of course that's a New Testament idea too. Jesus is the vine. Disciples are the branches. So life comes through Jesus Christ. But this is what God is going to do. Make you like a vine that is fruitful results in the fine wine. Wine is a good thing. (laughs) Not too much, but it's a good thing. See, all this natural imagery is designed to evoke in us a sense of wonder and beauty at the amazing work of God uh, that God seeks to do for his people. And the church needs to be seen like this. As you think about your church, you, you you might think us well, you know I sometimes say this it's a bit of a building site you know it's not very pretty because <laughs> uh, you know people are messy aren't they people's lives are messy but actually we need to have a different picture than that we need to see this beautiful plant that God is building as God God is seeking to grow and nurture so that it will bear fruit and every single individual can bear fruit. For the Lord Jesus Christ as we come into fellowship with him. Well, we've seen how this is what God is like. Uh, He is like the cypress tree. We've seen what he wants to do with his people as they come into fellowship with him. What's needed then for that process to begin? Well, we need to go back again to verse 1 and we need to repent of iniquity. Uh, So that's verse 1 Return, O Lord, uh, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now, here's a question. What is iniquity? Um, Most of us probably will think, well, it's just a synonym for sin or transgression. But actually, it has a particular focus, iniquity. Because what it's concerned about are the disordered and twisted desires of the heart. So iniquity is about a twistedness or Uh, such that our desires are directed towards some sort of perverted aim. And that's what we've seen in the behavior of Israel, especially in regard to worship. They want to worship, which I suppose is a good thing. But They want to worship not according to the way that God has said, but rather they want to worship the way that they feel they want to. They want to do it the way that we want to. Rather than the way the God has said. So they're driven by their desires. That, sounds, that feels good. That sounds good. That would be great, wouldn't it? Let's just do it that way. And sure, God will be pleased with it. Without actually checking in his words. Is he going to be pleased with it? And that's caused, that causes them to stumble. Because that desire to worship is a good thing. But it's twisted. And it goes towards a false aim. To work, begin to worship idols. Rather than the living God. And it causes them to stumble. Now that stumbling idea is in contrast to the upright walking of the person who is fully devoted to God. You look at verse nine, um, "For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them." So, so a godly person is described as somebody who's walking uprightly, uh, firmly, with clear direction and sense of uh, purpose. But somebody who's given over to their sin is stumbling around and can't keep their feet. And that's what he's uh, he's describing here. So there's this call for Israel to return to the Lord. The Lord who is this self-communicating, self-giving God. Who wants to communicate himself to his people. And so in coming to God there is held out to them and to us this evening the blessing of restored fellowship with God if we come to him and turn from our stumbling iniquity. So that then all the fruitfulness of God will follow in our lives and we'll be transformed. But you have to come in a particular way. And um, verse two, I don't know if this is fair, but verse two sounds a bit like a sinner's prayer. You know the sinner's prayer? Some evangelists always use a sinner's prayer at the end of their evangelistic thing and uh, call people to pray it. And then they say, aha, you've said the prayer, then you must be a Christian. Well, it's not quite as simple as that. But the words are not necessarily bad to pray. And here's a sinner's prayer. Take with your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. It begins with coming to God with words. In other words, you need to come to God. If you're a sinner who needs God's help and you want to repent of your sin, you need to come able to articulate what it is you want him to do for you. You need to articulate your need before God. And so say to him, take away all my iniquity. All those disordered desires. All these perversions of the heart. Lord God, please come and take this away from us. All these things that would lead me away from you, come and take them away so that I can come to you. Now, this is quite a, it's quite a radical request because of, uh, to make of God. Because to do this, you have to recognize... That in all your iniquity, you're in trouble. You cannot yourself do anything about your state. Only God can do it. And you've got to recognize that. You'll never come to God, ask for his help. If you don't believe that you actually need him, and if you don't believe that you're actually a sinner, and that you are full of iniquity, you'll never come to him in the right way. And so the plea goes on. Accept what is good. Now he's still talking about the words that he's expressed. And I think this can only refer to the the truthfulness of the way in which that request is made. Take away all my iniquity. Is that a true request? Or are you just saying the words? I'll pray the sinner's prayer and I'll get saved. No. uh, This has got to be an expression of the heart. Oh Lord take it all away. I am desperate. I need you to take this away from me. And it needs to be the genuine expression of the heart. So, accept what is good, God. Don't accept what is not good. And then the final couple of lines is about bulls and vows. Of course, this is Old Testament language and practice. But for us today, it is an expression of what... might call wholehearted commitment of yourself to God. It is an expression of our self-surrender to the self-giving God. You put yourself, as it were, into the hands of God and let him do his work in you. And then verse 3, finally, expresses what Israel wants to change specifically about its current situation. No longer looking to neighbor countries for, uh, for help, um, or to Syria or to Egypt, but instead looking to the Lord. No more resting on, you know, we will not ride on horses. Uh, not, no longer resting on military might for our defense, but looking to the Lord. No more idolatry of worship. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. You see, friends, this is what true repentance looks like—a desire to be, a true desire to be free of iniquity, an unhindered surrender and commitment to God, and a desire to put all our hopes in the Lord Himself. Well, how does how does God do all that? How does He remove all iniquity? How you know it's, the, it's in a sense it's the unanswered question in this chapter. How is God going to be able to do that? Can He just do it just by deciding? And the answer is is no, He can't. We need to we we began to look at this. Um, issue this morning in our morning service about how does God apply salvation to his people? One of the things we said this morning was that in order for anything to be able to be applied to us, there had to be something happening 2,000 years ago that actually dealt with the sin issue in Jesus Christ. And this is the, the answer to the question that we now know. That somebody needs to come and pay the price uh, price for sin, and of course that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, who came and died and rose again, and has ascended into heaven. And then he sets about the process of transformation of people by the sending of his Holy Spirit. And we, you know, stick with us in the morning, and we'll, we'll deal with all of these issues. But that's how he saves and transforms people. It's through his spirit, working in his word, that God sets about changing his people and renovating the twisted heart. And the coming of Jesus, of course, is, is still future for Hosea and Israel. But there are enough promises in the Old Testament that for people to believe in, that they know that somehow in the future... God is going to do it. There is the seed that is promised in Genesis 3.15. There is the branch in Isaiah that's spoken of. There is a king who will sit on the throne of David. And so on and so on. All of these messianic prophecies are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is how he is going to do it. So that God can be a cypress tree for his people. So that they can bear fruit. Well, Here's the final, we, come, we, we missed out verse 9, so let's just briefly look at that. Uh, Hosea says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Yeah, transgression is rebellion, actually. Rebellious people stumble with God's word. Well, what does he say? Let him understand these things. Let him know them. We need to understand and we need to know what God wants to do. So I guess we ought to do that, eh? We ought to pay attention. What is it that God wants to do in our lives? What does He want to do in your life? Let's find out. We'll find that God wants to do all sorts of amazing things that He's promised. If only we pay attention. So trust him. Give yourself to him. And discover that he is going to give you more, so much more, infinitely more, than you can ever give to him. Because you'll and then you discover that in glorious fellowship and communion with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the book of Hosea. Lord, it's it has challenged us and caused us to, to wrestle with your word. Some of us Perhaps we haven't liked it very much, and we've found it difficult and yet when we come to the end we discover the true intention of God. He's not simply waving a big stick over our delinquent people, but rather he wants you want to give yourself to your people for their good and for your glory. So help us we pray to trust you, give ourselves to you and commit ourselves into your hands. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.